You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent and community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, this is the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast, Todd Yuri. Welcome back. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is a special episode um, for me because the last time that I interviewed um, our special guest, um, he was running for state senate. And today we're talking to him as a state senator. So I want to say uh, welcome back to Senator Shane Reeves of the great state of Tennessee. Thank you, Todd. It is a great state. Um, it's it's uh, it's been a wild few years since you and I talked talk last time. And I think I shared with your your audience uh, last time I was on the show. My family now has been in pharmacy for about 120 years in Middle Tennessee. There is, there is nothing in pharmacy along the way that we haven't done as, as an organization from retail to long-term care to home infusion, medical equipment, respiratory, IV, specialty, you name it. We, we, we have done it all along, along the way and I'm still actively working and running a pharmacy today. So um, yeah, when we talked last time, I was seriously uh, running for, for, um, for the Tennessee State Senate and I was fortunate enough to get elected in March of 2018. So it has been about three years, three years ago now, uh, since I've got elected, and it's just been a crazy, crazy whirlwind. That's awesome, and we appreciate you coming back. I also want to welcome back Dr. Chloe Givens. Um, Not only is she part of our Pharmacy Podcast Network and known as the NAPLEX Podcast um, founder, but um, Chloe is also a constituent of the state of Tennessee and a resident of Tennessee. So welcome, Chloe. Thank you so much, Todd. It is a pleasure to be joining you all today. And Senator Reeves, I just want to say welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and I'm excited for our conversation today. Thank you. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, One of our series, the most popular, probably the, the second most popular series we've ever done was called the PBM Reform Podcast Series. And it really allows the insiders that understand the impact that pharmacy benefit management Uh, business models have on the safety of our patients based on the efficiency and the workflow of pharmacists, especially in the national chains that are are attempting to pump out as many prescriptions a day in order to to make a specific uh, revenue in it. And then when some pharmacies are owned by pharmacy benefit management companies, it's also uh, a conflict of interest in what's best for the safety of our communities and our patients, but also the working conditions of our pharmacists and our pharmacy technicians and the pressure that they're placed under and, um, and how that trickles out to uh, the safety of the public. So 
you are, I can't think of a better person to really dive into this subject of PBM reform and what states are doing individually, but the Supreme Court's paying attention to the outcomes of, of many of these cases, as we knew in Arkansas, with PCMA uh, versus, um, versus Rumley. Rumley. yes, uh, uh, exactly. So could you kind of chime into that and then also uh, unravel uh, specifically what Tennessee is going through? Well, I, there's a lot of directions I can go on that, so I don't want to ramble too much. But let let me let me start with a, let me start with a big with a big picture and kind of ease into all this, okay? Um, Absolutely. So I told you I got elected in March of 2018, and since that period of time, I, I've really only been in a full. You know, Tennessee, the Tennessee legislature only meets from January to April every year. So by the time I got there in March of 2018, the session was kind of over. So I've really only had 2019, 2020, and 2021, even as a state senator. And everybody knows 2020, the year blew up, so didn't get anything. But in 2019 and in 2021, I have filed PBM bills both times. Um, as a matter of fact, as a senator, we average about 45 bills each. There's 33 Tennessee state senators. So we average about 45 bills each, and a third of my bills have been healthcare-related bills because it's my background. Yep. So it's been pharmacists and nurses and doctors and hospitals and uh, home health and nursing homes, everything you can imagine. So before I specifically talk about PBM reform, one of the questions I do get asked real often, and I think it kind of shapes PBM reform, is you know, when I'm considering what legislation to carry, how do I make that decision? because a lot comes my way. And I can tell you, I run it through three filters. And any pharmacist out there, any place, anywhere, or anyone who's in healthcare that's running uh, for, for office or doing something, a whole lot of sense for me. The first filter I, I run everything through as far as um, being a pharmacist is, is this legislation good for patients? Man, I really, really try to start there because you can get caught up in a lot of different areas, but I, is it good for patients? Is it good for quality? Is it good for access, affordability, choice, experience? Is it going to be good for Tennessee patients in, in the long run? Is it going to make it work? Well, whatever they're getting. The, the second question I try to run everything through when, when I'm down there because of the bit, my, my business background as well is does this legislation move us more toward a free market solution in healthcare in general? Um, I don't know if we will ever truly have a free market in healthcare as long as we've got Medicare and Medicaid and insurance companies controlling what everybody costs, what everything parents get paid. But I, I want us to continue to, to move toward a marketplace where competition and transparency and innovativeness and consumerism, that's ultimately what's going to help us in the bigger healthcare market overall is to just let people control, choose their healthcare and be able to afford their healthcare, that'll drive it. Then the third big uh, question I run things through is ultimately if I pass this bill, is it going to be disruptive or is it gonna be destructive? Cause I don't wanna break something. You know, I don't mind shaking it up, but I really try to think through it. Cause if I ended up passing something that was just so much of an overreach, um, you know, it could really cause, it could really cause some damage and, and then you end up cleaning everything up and, and it's, it's harder to do that. So that being said, um, when I looked at the PBM bill, um, I decided to take on this session. It made sense of those three filters. I thought it was great for patients. 
Um, I felt it was a great step in the right direction as far as free market. And I felt like it was disruptive, but it's not going to be disruptive. So our timing on this call is really, really, really good because I just passed uh, this PBM reform bill, two, well, two days ago in Senate Commerce, Tennessee Senate Commerce. It was Senate Bill 1617 uh, and just passed it uh, two days ago. I, it was a vote of seven to two. I've still got some work to do left on this. I've got to get it through finance. We've got to get it through the House. I'm going to have to tweak a few more things. But at the end of the day, this bill does five things. You want to tell you what they are? Yes. Yes. Okay. And they may not all they may not all survive, but the, these are the five things uh, that are in the bill right now. Uh, the first thing um, was I actually had a section in there specifically geared toward 340B. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know what 340B, it's the federal plan that's in place that a lot of hospitals and small clinics use where they can buy medications um, at a lower price to take care of marginalized citizens. Um, so PBMs are cutting pretty aggressively into their reimbursement nowadays. So I have a number of hospitals in my district that are already hanging by a thread. 340B is one of the few things they're able to do to continue to be able to support people and make it work. And, I'm, and I was told, if you don't find some way to keep them from continue to from PBMs continue to cut our rates, it's going to destroy the 340B program and possibly put our house, put our hospitals under. So the first thing I did, there was a big section just around 340B discrimination. The second thing that's in the bill uh, had everything to do with specialty pharmacy discrimination and patient steering, which is hands down the biggest issue I run into with so many pharmacists that are out there. It's like you said, PBMs own their own pharmacies, or many, sometimes pharmacies own the PBMs, yep. and they steer people to their PBMs, to their pharmacies, regardless of what the patient wants to do, regardless of what the physician wants to do, and clearly regardless of what the pharmacy wants to do. So this bill really puts the hand, puts the uh, puts the choice back into the hands of patients where they can choose their pharmacies. And we already had some any willing provider legislation in the state past, but this took it up a whole nother level. Uh, in regards to pharmacy, home infusion in other areas. I hope in just a minute we're going to get a chance to talk about ERISA and uh, all of that. But this had a lot to do with, with trying to prevent them from discriminating on specialty pharmacy and on uh, patient steering, which just drives me crazy uh, uh, in, in the profession. The third part of the bill has to do with uh, the PBM's favorite game of uh, spread pricing and rebate retention. So I, I pretty much have blown, I got, I gave a big story the other day. I told, I said, let me walk you through how this process works. And I told the story of a patient going into a pharmacy, what the pharmacist pays for things, how the, how the PBM gets a rebate back, how they, how they actually charge the insurance company, the profits they're making. So this legislation ensures that any price reductions that the PBMs do can actually pass back through the pharmacy and get into the hands of consumers. So obviously they're they're flipping out about that, um, and they should be, I, you know. And one thing I said over and over, Todd, the other day is I don't care if people make money. I, I'm a capitalist. Absolutely. I don't have a problem in the world with people making money. Right. What I do have a hard time with is people making money, acting like they're not making money, and at the end of the day, hurting cho hurting patient choice. Um, pharmacies are closing, and physicians can't even determine what medications you're taking. That I, that I don't like. If they want to make money, let's, that's okay, but let's, let's, let's look at both sides of the equation. So that was a third part of this, um, the bill, the spread pricing, the rebate retention. Then the fourth part of it, 
And fifth part of it really combined had everything to do with transparency. Um, I talked about um, actually creating a, uh, an interface where when the patient is literally standing with the doctor right then, all the PBMs, there's a mechanism when they can look uh, and they can see what medication that their formulary is, is on their formulary, what's their copay going to be. It's just a real-time tool that I'm trying to get in place in Tennessee to provide more transparency for the doctors and the patients on the front end to get things filled. So that's a mouthful. And here, here's the kicker. Um, a lot of people gave me a hard time about, you know, goodness, Reeves, you're bringing this big bill. You got this, like this massive Christmas tree. You got ornaments all over it. I mean, why are you bringing such a large, large bill? And I said, because this is a 20, 30 year problem. And, and the pendulum has swung for decades to this one. And you can't even begin to move the dial to fix the issues with a little bitty bill. I said, I could probably pass bills like this every single year for the next 10 years to just get us back to where we're in an environment where PBMs are functioning the way they were 20 years ago. I said, so it requires a big bill to get it done. But there was a lot of other things that I didn't do, like the, like the copay accumulators, the PBM. Are you familiar with that? The copay accumulators that the manufacturers are doing nowadays. No. I won't go down. The, I won't go down the weeds on those things. There was a lot of stuff that I didn't carry on it because I felt like these five things were enough. Okay, so you can tell I'm fired up about it, um, and um, it, it's been a been a been a rewarding week. But it's you know it's, it's a tough week too. You know, I mean, uh, but but you have to, you just have to fight. I mean, I would encourage pharmacists out there. You do, you just got to fight and you got to push back. Um, you know, I have so many friends of mine that are pharmacists like, well, I just, I just don't want to get involved with this. I mean, I, I can't afford to have my contracts cut and I can't afford to have my reimbursements cut. Just the fact that we live in an environment, we're trying to make a, make a living in an environment where people are genuinely concerned that a PBM is going to come in and cut their rates. Yep. It took a stand for patients. There's something wrong with that. Um, so anyway. That's what I did. That was the big reform bill. A couple of years ago, I, I passed a bill. It kind of stopped some of the DIR and the clawback clawbacks. But that, that's what I've done this time. And we're not across the finish line, but uh, we moved the ball this last week. We're on the 30-yard line. I do have a question for you um, yep. concerning your bill. So for those who are listening right now who don't already know, the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association represents pharmacy benefit managers and they have argued several times that they do truly operate to help lower those drug costs and pass the savings on to patients so what would you say to those who feel that by ruling to regulate pbms we would in turn be harming market competition i would say a few things number one to the best of my knowledge I can't find PBMs in any country in the world but America. Okay? That's one thing. We're like a tiny little percentage of the world, but that's number one. Okay. Number two, I would say, I think when PBMs first, um, first came on the scenes 30, 40 years ago, and it truly were, a, were an access point for patients to work with health insurance companies, um, there was a whole lot of value, and there still is value in that. Um, but I think the idea nowadays that they're the ones that are saving all the money for consumers is absurd. And one way I can directly point to it is this. Follow the money, folks. 
just follow the money in, in marketplace nowadays. In the Fortune 500 companies last year in the United States of America, CVS was number five, United Healthcare was number seven, and Cigna Optum was number 13 of the top in the top, they're in the top 15 most successful high revenue companies in the country. Combined, they had like almost $700 billion revenue last year. So again, I'm okay people making people making money, but you just look at the trends, follow the money. What I said the other day was their revenue is 16 times the size of the entire Tennessee state budget, 16 times a whole state. So uh, I believe it, I believe it sells well for them to say they're saving all all the sponsors all this money. But if you look at healthcare cost in America today, look at look at who's making the money in at Wall Street. That's all I would say. Just follow the money. Just follow the money. I agree with that. Um, and along the same lines, I do have one last additional question. Um, so I was reading the other day that on March 11th, Congresswoman Harshbarger, who is also a pharmacist from Tennessee, she introduced her first bill, which I believe is the House Companion to Senate Bill 298, which is the PBM Accountability Study Act. And that bill was introduced last month by Senators Blackburn and Braun, and the bill essentially would require the Government Accountability Office to study the role of PBMs, the role that they play in the pharmaceutical supply chain, while also providing Congress with appropriate appropriate policy recommendations on how to help increase transparency and improve competition. So... I know that the APHA has been fighting for PBM reform for some time now, and they have stated recently that we already know the problems with the system. We already know the loopholes that are here and how to fix those. So do you feel that another study like this needs to be done, or do you feel that we collectively should just be taking action to move forward with reform? I appreciate Representative uh, Harshberger doing something. She's new there. She's got. She's she's probably at this point when you're when you're new in this job, especially if you spent your whole life in the private sector. It takes you a couple of years just to find the bathrooms and committee rooms and and to meet other House members. So she's probably probably introducing a bill to get the process started to study. Do I really think that in of itself is going to fix the issues? Absolutely not. And the concerns are when you do those studies. Many times the final results of those studies are influenced by PBMs or people that are backing PBMs. So you may not get the results back that you want. So my take to her would be, I think it's great that you're doing it, but whatever you get back, um, take some of the things that are working in states around the country and see if we can't start doing that on a federal federal level uh, to, to make a difference. Like for the MedD programs that are so controlled by federal government, we have to do those things. So I, I would never be critical of her for filing that, um, but it needs to be the first step of, of, of many steps if, if we're gonna get this uh, under control. Let's shift gears for a second because I do wanna hear from you, uh, Senator Reeves, about the block grants and providing more flexibility. The amount of centers, that um, the amount that around the state spending in the fiscal year 2019 and it's supposed to be, um, you know, eight point six billion, and, and what that means for for Tennesseans. 
Yeah, so for people out there that don't know, uh, the state of Tennessee uh, in 2018 decided to file a waiver uh, for the Medicaid program. Our Medicaid program is called TenCare uh, in the state of Tennessee, but decided to file a waiver and say um, every single year at the end of the year, whenever we have spent uh, all the money that the federal, the, the state puts in and the federal money puts in the spend all the dollars that have been put aside for Medicaid, what we're finding is we, we actually have money left over at the end of the year. Well, we, we took care of all of our existing enrollees that were Medicaid qualified, and we had money that was left over. Well, what happens is you have to return all of that back to the federal government. So the decision was made, why don't we simply put this into a situation where it's a block grant and that every single, uh, at the end of the year, anything that's left over, we actually can keep and we can use half of that to provide additional services to existing 10 care patients or to bring on new, add more Medicaid patients to the rolls, which is a big issue here in the state already about adding more Medicaid patients. So it is an experiment. I did write an op-ed on it. Actually, Amanda uh, helped me with that op-ed, um, but, but I wrote an op-ed on it after looking at all of it. And I'll tell you, when it first rolled out a couple of years ago, I was really nervous about it, to be honest. Uh, it felt like, um, you know, it, it was kind of played well politically, but I was concerned it was not gonna provide the coverage we needed to really take care of some of our most marginalized patients. Uh, but now that it has rolled out, and now that I have met with TenCare, they've made commitments like, we're not gonna cut any patients under any circumstances. We're not gonna cut any services to any existing patients. We're not gonna cut any money from existing providers. Everything's going to be exactly like it is, and we're going to use all the savings to continue to make the program richer and richer. So the truth is, Todd, let's do this again in a year, and I'll tell you, because <laughs> it's, it's just now rolling out in the state. It's really it's starting to happen, but it really kicks off middle of this year when our budget starts like in July. But I would say a year, from, a year or two from now, I'll have a sense of whether it really makes sense. Um, there's other ideas that I've been hearing about that kind of tie into this that aren't law yet, like a Medicaid buy-in program. So what that might look like is you might have people who are the working poor in Tennessee, who it's, I always say it's the lady that's got three kids and she works at Waffle House and she's just doing the best she can, but she just doesn't make any money and she can't afford her insurance. But maybe there's a way she could put so much money into the Medicaid, this, this larger program, and she could buy into the Medicaid program and get some insurance for herself. So there's other creative things that are being kicked around to kind of help those few hundred thousand people that are really just falling in the gap in the state. They just don't make enough money to afford health insurance, but they don't qualify full for full-blown Medicaid. Um, so there's some neat ideas that are being kicked around in that space. So it it's the, you know, the elephant in the room at every time we get on a podcast and we're talking with um, leading pharmacists in their different states. And that is unfortunately this pandemic that we're fighting right now. And, uh, pharmacists are leading in that fight all over the all over the country. We have an entire campaign called the U.S. Farmy um, because we believe in what pharmacists are doing uh, collectively. In in Tennessee, it's you know it's the same focus, but from a senator's perspective, I think you have insights that we'd like to hear about because of the rollout of different vaccines that are coming available. And and just a day ago, the Southeast Tennessee area. Uh, had 
had several counties, 10 counties that are opening eligibility for the COVID vaccines for everyone age 16 and older, which is, is I'd like to be in Tennessee right now because I can't get the vaccine um, as someone who isn't uh, considered frontline or at risk per se of, of the, or at least the highest risks. But um, let's round out uh, today's episode and, and really talk about Tennessee's strategy uh, with, the, with the vaccine rollout. Sure, be, ha be happy to. So the governor uh, put me on his vaccine task force uh, back last summer when this rolled out and it, con and it consists of uh, me in the Senate and a gentleman in the House and then across, across the state you had people in acute care, post-acute care, folks that work in a variety of different levels of government, city government, state governments, county governments, to look at this whole process all along and everything you've been seeing on a federal level, I mean, I was kind of on the call saying, okay, what needs to be done first in Tennessee? Who, who needs to get it first? And so like the rest of the country, we kind of align with, let's make sure our essential healthcare workers get it first, followed by those who are most vulnerable, our skilled nursing facilities, our ALFs, and then those over 75. And we've kind of worked our way, worked our way on down um, through that. So I played, a, I played a, a pretty big role in sitting on that task force and trying to think through who gets it first. Um, and it's, it's interesting because that was a very, very um, polarizing issue in, in the communities that I was even in. There are physicians that I talked to that said, this is ridiculous. I'm 41 years old. I'm in good shape. This is crazy to be giving me this shot when there's a 90-year-old here in the, in, down the road in the nursing home that's going to die, but unfortunately, the way the process worked, they, they had if they didn't get it, it's not like they could take their vaccine and drive it over to the nursing home and give it to her. Um, they they kind of had to go through the through the process. Um, just like um, I, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but uh, what's happening in Tennessee today, Todd, is we are now between Pfizer, Moderna. J&J's um, new shot, and I don't know when we're going to get AstraZeneca. Right. We're, we're getting about a quarter million doses every week in Tennessee, right this minute. And at the current pace, um, we are very quickly going to get to a place where we have more vaccine than we have uptake. Um, we're, we're having, on average, of people that are, being, that are being offered to, at least people who are over the age of 25, um, about a 55% uptake. So 45% of people don't want to get it at all. Right. And that is, that is a real big problem in Tennessee rural counties. Uh, you know, my, my people probably don't know Tennessee that well, but I, I represent a suburban area called Rutherford County. But then I have four little rural counties that are lots of farmers and teachers and small business people, Bedford, Marshall, Moore, and Lincoln County. Hey, one county people know is Moore County. Moore County, Tennessee is where Lynchburg is and Jack Daniels. People know what that is. So I, re <laughs> I, re I represent Moore County. There's only about 6,000 people that live in Moore County and they all work for Jack. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, we are, we're quickly getting to a point that there's going to be more vaccine than there is uptake in the state. And people that I talked to, I, I just did a, um, a, a call last week uh, with one of our local media sources, and they said to me, what do, I, what do I think about that, about people not wanting to get the vaccine? And I said, well, first and foremost, I'm a pharmacist, and I believe getting vaccinated is just part of good health, just like exercise and diet and nutrition and getting sleep. So I, I recommend people get vaccinated, and I specifically recommend that people get vaccinated 
if they are in one of those protected classes. Mm-hmm. Just don't, if you're over 70, if you've got comorbidities, absolutely need to get it. But if you go beyond that, we live in a free country. We live in a free state. We're not going to tie people down and vaccinate them. Um, and I believe between the few million people that are going to get vaccinated in Tennessee, coupled with just herd, humini- humi- herd immunity from so many people that have had it, Mm-hmm. Plus, just better weather coming in the spring. Yep. I think better days are ahead. Um, my take is that probably for the rest of our lives, forevermore, we will have cough, cold, flu, and COVID season from now on. I think that's just the world we're in, and you'll just have to decide each each fall what you want to do. Get a COVID shot, get a flu shot. Every so many years, get a pneumonia shot, and just uh, just just deal with it. I think that's the world we're in. What else? Senator Reeves, I, I do have a question for you. Yes, um, as a fellow pharmacist and as a fellow Tennessean, what can I and other pharmacists do to assist you more as a state legislator? Oh, that's such a wonderful, wonderful question. And I just, I can't emphasize this enough. As a state senator, when I'm in Nashville, okay, all day long, I mean, you have to understand all day long, I have people in my office, primarily are lobbyists. And they are, it's, it's all the big insurance players, it's the PBM players, it's all the folks that have, that have got a voice and they're constantly, constantly, constantly talking <laughs> to us as legislators and trying to steer bills. Bills is what goes on. Um, this PBM bill that I just passed this last week, do you know why I had so much success? Because hundreds and hundreds of pharmacists and pharmacy students around the, the state called and emailed their senators in my commerce committee. So I'd have them come up to me and say, Reeves, tell the pharmacist folks to back off, I'm voting for it. So it matters when those people at home get involved and they call up and say, listen, I'm filling these medications below my cost, or I feel this insulin in the PBM came and clawed back $10,000 and I'd already filled it for the last six months. And and these senators who are not pharmacists will say, what are you talking about? So Mm -hmm. you you just just know when you live in a district and you you have a senator or a representative calling them, going to see them, when they come home on the weekend saying, "Can can I meet you for coffee, grab them at church, grab them in the malls, it is, it's so much more powerful because if you don't, if you don't have a loud voice, you're going to get out shouted because everybody else is screaming at us mm-hmm. uh, and they're not screaming for pharmacists. I couldn't agree more. It's a big deal, Chloe. It's a big, big deal. Uh, with that being said, do you feel that there couldn't really be a more perfect time than now for pharmacists to really begin practicing at the top of their license and even gaining pharmacist provider status? I say this, and this is a this is a Tennessee issue, Todd. So this won't all fit with with the, all your listeners. But I say the three the three biggest challenges for Tennessee pharmacists today in our state are number one. I think it's tough because we've got like six pharmacy schools. Mm-hmm. So many young people coming out in the state nowadays. I think it's ultimately going to impact jobs and wages. In 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 that, I think we got to talk about that and think about that in Tennessee. And I don't know about the rest of the country. The mm-hmm. second issue, the second big issue, is um, PBM reform and payment reform and finding some way for patient choice and experience and working with docs. And the third thing is rethinking our scope of practice in Tennessee. 
how we get paid, how we don't get paid, what that looks like down the road. And I'm working directly with the Tennessee Farm Association over the next couple of years to, to rethink that. Um, but to me, that's the three big things. Those are, those are the next three hills we got to climb uh, in Tennessee, at least, if we're, if we're going to be successful for a few more years. So as long as I'm there, I'll keep fighting it. Then give it to somebody else. Maybe you need to run, Chloe, when I get out and I'll get behind. <laughs> what did I say? I mean. <laughs> I told you. I said, give me about two to t two to seven years and we're going to put Chloe uh, out there as the next <laughs> senator of, Senate of, of Tennessee. And so do you, do you live in Knoxville? Is that what you mean? I do. Did you grow up in Knoxville? I did. Okay. Well, I know that the, the senators in Knoxville are Briggs and Massey and McNally. Uh-huh. They're all three probably going to retire in the next five to 10 years. There you go. <laughs> you, 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 you call me when you're ready. Okay. Okay. That sounds like a deal. I want to be on her, on her publicist board or, or public relations, whatever I can do to help. <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, this has been an absolute honor to have you on. Um, you, we've been a fan of yours. I've been a fan of yours back in 12 stone days. Um, when your long-term care pharmacy division was looking for a pharmacy management system, which I actually spent a bunch of time, I think, with your partner. Um, right. And it's just, it's just fun to, to get you back here. So I want to make this an open invitation to the state of Tennessee, not only Senator Reeves, but other senators, other congressmen that are listening. If you want to participate in talking about reform, this is the biggest podcast platform in the nation with the ears of the pharmacists listening. So take advantage of this. And Senator Reeves, we'd like to have you back. Appreciate that. Let's get together in a couple of years and see where we are. But I, Todd, appreciate you, Chloe, appreciate you and your passion for the profession. And I look forward to doing this again down the road and hopefully uh, we'll all be at a better place and definitely pharmacists in Tennessee. Absolutely. Absolutely. We thank okay. uh, Senator Reeves for being a member and a partner of uh, the U.S. Farmy and what he's doing for the for the state and for the nation and representing pharmacists. And as always, I thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Great. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.